Welcome to She's Having an Episode, a podcast dedicated to TV's very best female characters. I'm screenwriter Layla London. And I'm writer and journalist Ashling O'Leary. And today we are discussing Libby Epstein from Fleischman is in Trouble. Libby, played by Lizzie Kaplan, is kind of the secret protagonist of the show. As the narrator of what first appears to be Dr. Toby's post-divorce story, we only see glimpses of Libby's own life to start. Still, she too is struggling to come to terms with the state of her marriage and her broader identity, particularly as it relates to motherhood's effect on the pursuit of her personal and professional dreams. She is, dare I say, a perfect example of millennial woman, and one that made us once again go, well, she's having an episode. Ashling, give me those fun Fleischman facts. Well, yeah, she had many an episode indeed. Talk about a midlife malaise. I just think like that was a real eye opener on how depressing your fucking 40s plus can be. Um, So, but here we are discussing it because you know what? It is a meaty one. So actually, the first slightly fun fact is um, it was intentional to cast people who we knew when we were young. So you have um, Liz, you, what's her name? Uh, you, the main guy, Lizzie Kaplan, obviously, <laughs> uh, who we all know from Mean Girls uh, and uh, her iconic role. Uh, but also Jesse Eisenberg from The Social Network and then Claire Danes from Romeo and Juliet. I'm talking about their earlier work. Obviously, they've done multiple things since. Oh, and Adam Brody from The O.C. Um, oh, I was like, I was like, you almost forgot Seth times two because he's also Seth. In he, this, that right? man, Adam, though, like, it's either Adam or Seth. He is one or the other. I feel right. like he, his like Sasha Fierce is Seth. <laughs> But yeah, and that was intentional um, because these are people, they're actors that we have grown up with, us meaning uh, women in their 30s. Um, Plus. <laughs> plus. <laughs> the point is like, if they're aging, then there's just no stopping the process. Um, so that is genius. Mm, yeah, it's almost like I was kind of like, you know, if she cast Macaulay Culkin, that would have been even better because like <laughs> what, that day when he tweeted out, guys, I'm 40, just like, just so I let you know, everyone was like, whoa, that was a oh real moment. Imagine Macaulay Culkin as Toby. Oh, I don't think it, it definitely wouldn't have worked. Jesse Eisenberg is 100% the right choice, but like... Oh, yes, this casting, like, hands down is perfect for everyone. It is, like, absurd how real those characters feel in those familiar faces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's exactly it, because they are... They all took on the roles that they did um, because they ultimately connected so much with the characters and with the so and with the novel so Frightman is in Trouble is based on a novel by Taffy Brodesser Ackner who is a journalist she writes for New York Times she also used to write for GQ she was a staff writer actually at the New York Times until I think this project came into play and she like just ran towards she initially wasn't going to be a screenwriter but she would have chats with producers and they would present all different options and she was she found herself getting jealous um she <laughs> she was like no actually i want to write this and then she met these um 
two producers who were like, well, this novel is in your voice. You absolutely should write it. So, mm. um, yeah, they ultimately gave her control uh, of her own story. Go figure. Oh, what a nice idea. <laughs> but no, it is, it is so interesting because... I completely understand that you'd feel as somebody who I suppose had not done anything in this space, you'd feel a massive sense of, you know, either on one hand, imposter syndrome or just the fear of what if I turn my excellent, perfect novel into something unwatchable, but it is televisual perfection. This is one of the best series I felt I watched in months and months and months when it came out if not years it's so specific and in her voice it's just yeah it's phenomenal and just one no didn't win it was just nominated for seven emmys only proof to taffy's pudding if that's the phrase mm-hmm. yeah i realized actually never finished my uh fun fact uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, back, please no, here, yeah. here we go with the rambles already i know um just so much to chew on but um no i mean like that was the thing is that oh that was it jesse when initially the project was pitched to him um he was 36 so he and taffy spoke and he was like you know i i think people doubted his ability to play the role because they would associate him as you know he's still not someone who's midlife then the thing was the pandemic happened so you had two years lapse and then when they could pick the project back up, he was 38. So worked in their favor to, um, you know, make him appropriately on his way to middle-age them. To um, have a global pandemic. It was very good for uh, us all, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To produce a show of ex- like exceptional caliber. So that was uh, one fact I learned. Uh, <laughs> another, God, I love your facts, man. Another was the ep- episode three and episode seven. So ep- episode three, right, to clarify, is a flashback between Toby and Rachel. And this, uh, they block shot, is the term I learned. <laughs> <laughs> Episode three and episode seven. So episode seven is the episode where it is focused solely on Rachel's story, where we Mm. see things where the perspective is shifted. We see everything from her side of the uh, side story, side screen, whatever. Um, And suddenly we are thrown into this whoa moment of realizing wow we heard a very biased story uh we were only here of course we were only hearing one man's side of his experience we were not at all hearing the other party and so they block shot episode three episode seven meaning they shot that back to back so went from the characters, uh, especially Claire Danes' role, being rigid and very self-obsessed to suddenly playing it much more sympathetic. And so, you know, she just says that it was a very interesting exercise in acting to do that. Because mm. I can imagine going from someone so controlled to someone who is in full-on breakdown. Yeah. And that's it, right. And it's such a it's such a good way into the Libby conversation almost because the only reason that perspective shifts is because Libby finds Rachel in that park. And for the very first time, we see that this woman has 
her own perspective, her own experiences. And obviously, as we sort of later find out within the series, this beautiful narration that's happening throughout this story is Libby writing a book about Toby. It is not Toby's story. It is her actual literal story that she is writing. And I think the the way that Libby, even in episodes leading up to that point, is the only friend going, oh, but do you think she's okay in this grand scenario where the wife has disappeared, she's a bitch, she's ruined his children's lives and his lives and all the rest. She's the only person within that bizarre triad friendship that questions how Rachel is doing. Um, And they they sort of drop all of those hints so early on that that episode is so gratifying, isn't it? When we actually enter this world where, again, is it the exact truth that happened? Is it Rachel's truth versus Toby's truth? Who knows? But it is important to acknowledge that both exist, right? Yes, this is it. Um, Because in any... uh, I think about this a lot in terms of because I read a lot of life writing a lot of memoir a lot of essays and ultimately with those stories you are only ever going to get that person's point of view it is their story it's their experience and of course it's quite telling of the writer aka Tuffy her training as a journalist and mm. specifically her training uh, her job as a profile writer she yeah. interviews people and she in order to get a whole picture of them you can't just rely on what they are telling you you need to speak with everyone else in their life and who has crossed paths with them so you can get as close to the truth as you can and so the the thing of libby always bringing up is she okay what about her it is very telling about the writer's experience of like well hang on like you know what about what in this experience what happened on the other side of the fence there uh, ultimately Liv, uh, Taffy found when she would be interviewing people especially men who maybe like had gone through a period of change she would mm-hmm. find herself wondering hmm how did the wife how did the partner <laughs> in, or how did the partner in your life how did they view it? How did they see it? Um, and that absolutely fed into the telling of this story. It's like, you know, especially because this is a man that has re-entered Libby's wife, life after 12 years. He, yeah. He uh, only picked up the phone when he was going through a divorce upon his therapist's advice. Oh, it really, I mean, like, it doesn't take a genius to to get halfway through this series and go, oh, my God, Fleischman is not only in trouble, but an absolute fucking dick. What an asshole. And her perspective on that being so open and so welcoming and open-armed to his, I suppose we can call it trauma. It's trauma. They, They both traumatized each other is very telling of that dynamic within, I think, a lot of male and female relationships where a woman is the person to go to with your emotional baggage. It's very clear almost from the start, and especially when we realize we go more into Libby's home life and her 
hills she's climbing that nobody's really asking her how she is throughout the entire first half of that series. Um, she's just there as a sort of servitude to the men around her, which, yeah, feels telling. <laughs> and I know this character is enormously based on Taffy's own experience. And she said that in a lot of interviews, even when she was writing the book. Um, but I think it, there's just something inherently relatable <laughs> to any woman about being in that position around men, whether you adore them or not. And she does really want to escape her life with these men too. It's a really interesting sort of threesome for lack of a better word, to be part of at that time in her life. Yeah, agreed. So earlier you said bizarre triad. Why that? <laughs> why that word? What? What? Are, what are your views on this uh, trio? Oh, I just it's a it's a tough one, right? Because I think three way friendships are amazing. You and I are in one. We both adore, and it, yeah. I think sometimes when you have three people who are very different have some connective tissue it's so enriching because you learn so much from each other you're really inspired by the differences in each other it's the sort of most intimate way to be in a group right mm, yeah. these characters and these men toby and seth specifically do not seem to care about her at all all and I know she's at a stage in her life where she doesn't really want to be a suburban mom and so she's probably not trying to make friends with you know the women around her she probably is holding on to these cool years in the city with these two guys and the the youth that they shared together right but I think that friendship is almost rooted in nostalgia over actual friendship and it just seems like a very dangerous thing to be part of when she's the person they care about least. They're both very self-involved to like an absurd degree. And show, so is she, to, to be completely clear. Yeah. <laughs> but, but none of them are getting a whole lot out of each other as friends and confidants. She's going above and beyond. She's trying to get him blinds and look after him and take that emotional load but nobody is really there for her even when the scene that sticks out in my head so specifically is when Seth invites Toby for like a wild night in the city and she goes I could come with you and her husband is sitting on her other side going we're supposed to be watching Ratatouille and she's just like oh yeah we've seen it this is what I'm used to I want to go experience something new and even then objectively you'd be able to tell in a person okay they really want to come on this night out and he's like no bye <laughs> it was just the most devastating thing to watch and i mean to lizzie's excellent performance of this entire show you see so much in the smallest movement of her face in that scene and it's just yeah it's flawless writing flawless acting just that's my long-winded explanation of the triad that I hate. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I just, um, it's funny because I was, you know, just listening to you describe what she's doing for them versus what they're doing for her, which is nothing. I mean, I, Seth is, yeah, I, just those two men are so self-involved. They're also, they're so wrapped up in their own shit 
uh, and she the thing is she's giving back to them because she just she just can't deal with her own life she honestly is just like I will go start out your blinds because I don't want to go start out my blinds I yes. just want to like pull the blinds on my own life and so I will go start out yours yes <laughs> 100% it's so much easier to go start someone out than look at your own shit like you know it's mm. just it's just and it's and do you know what it's really cheap and instant gratification. You're just like, I'm helping my friend and he's going through a really tough time because as, you know, broad sweeping generalization coming in, but (laughs) women were raised to be like these nurturing, compassionate sorts, right? So you are very much meant to be, especially with men, you are meant to, you know, cuddle them and make sure they're okay and bolster them make sure they feel like safe and um loved and all this shit (laughs) when we just want to feel the same way Uh, (laughs) but yeah it's like if she she we see her going through i mean we see both her and rachel go through their own spiral that like in very different ways but Mm. no one is looking out for them to be fair rachel has no actual friends whereas Libby. supposedly had these two lads but it's so true neither of them are actually checking in on her and Mm. um listen listen when you're an adult you can make choices so (laughs) it's she's looking for an escape so she's getting out of that friendship what she can't like she knows what she's getting out of it yeah Uh, i think i think she does you're, you're right. It's a, it's a means to an end, right? She's not confronting her own shit and she's distracted by a, a world she wanted, a life she wanted, a career she wanted. Uh, it's much more comfortable than going, oh God, I'm a mother and a wife here in the suburbs where I never planned to be. Yeah. I, it's so interesting, isn't it too? Because it's it's sort of inaccurate to call it a midlife crisis or a I don't know a breakdown I mean Rachel definitely has a breakdown it's an excellent portrayal of a breakdown and really moving and really well conceived but the sort of journey that Libby goes on especially as we relate to her past and all the things she wanted to achieve and couldn't achieve it's almost just like a reckoning of the youth she didn't have right it's it's a big elongated outburst that is parts enjoyable parts sort of depressing and awful mm. it's it's the youth of like you know at one point she's just smoking and not really doing much today and then she wants to be out and about and doing wild shit in the city with those friends that abandoned her it's yeah it's chaotic mm. yeah i just there's something she says in the, the yeah the final episode and she talks about she feels how she was that she's the most authentic version of herself with Toby and Seth. I was living this life that wasn't mine anymore. And then I was living a life that hadn't ever been mine. The thing is, it's interesting that she thinks the most authentic version of herself was with Toby and Seth, because what is authentic in this space? Mm. She's just holding on to her youth. We look at our youth with rose tinted glasses and yeah. it is that I just it's it's that sliding doors moment of what could have been if I had stayed in the city and if I had led that life and la la la. And there's no accountability, you know, I was in this life that wasn't mine. I was like, oh, shit, like life just took hold. And yeah. 
for those 10 years it took to move to the suburbs and have kids and all the rest. And to, to the credit of this being a very real experience that a lot of women go through, but you're absolutely right. There is still authenticity in that being the choices she made mm. and that being the result of it. It doesn't mean there is a version of her that existed 10 years ago that couldn't still be her and she's reminding herself that she was ambitious or connected or whatever it may be but it's not inauthentic to have lived and chosen a life you didn't want it's like a misuse of the word almost isn't it to to gratify the feelings she's experiencing um Oh, she's been yeah. incredibly sorry for herself. She's just like, <laughs> oh my God, what is this life I lead? Like, babe, you made a choice. You left a magazine. <laughs> You're meant to write this book. Um, you know, just you got to get on with it sometimes. And you have to, oh, not, I think it's really easy, especially if, you know, you're not working to like, it just get wrapped up in your own head and mm. just kind of like trundle along with the day-to-day chores that kind of tick you on from the Monday to Friday. But uh, it's if you've no one pushing you, like that's the thing, you know, basically adulthood is you pushing yourself. You have to, (laughs) it's like you, you have to make choices and they have to, you know, meet your, gotta meet your compass or meet your like true north, you know? You are so much less tolerant of Libby's shit than I am. I would feel like if she hadn't met you, she wouldn't have done any of this. <laughs> You're like, make choices, woman. Take responsibility. Con, it's because I look at her and I'm like, oh my god, there's a bit of me there, you know? <laughs> I'm like, oh my god. Otherwise, ten years will go by and I'll be on a hammock, like sm- just smoking some weed. Like, where did my life go? <laughs> and you know what? It's really easy to do that. The hard part is actually showing up and yeah, doing the work, you know. It's so true. Speaking of similarities between the character, um, this is a woman in a male-dominated industry that is journalism. Oh yes, they talk about it. (laughs) Oh yeah, it is incredibly, incredibly toxic world. (laughs) Yeah, as seen in the show. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it, too, because I think like so many of the portrayals of journalism, even in shows I've loved are pretty over or under dramatized or turn into something very specific that doesn't feel real but as somebody who as both of us have worked in and around this industry for you know a decade I I thought it was so so relatable without you know throwing any particular publications under the bus this is an industry that men rule they can be well-connected men and advance 10 years past any woman who started as an editorial assistant like Libby did she at some at one point says you know she works in a major men's magazine <laughs> assume it's the GQ of this fantasy world <laughs> um, and she's only ever wanted to work there and she was living her dream but she was also the one fetching coffees for what's his name Archer Sylvan this impressive columnist who she almost seems to have a sort of sexual or romantic fantasy about when I think a lot of women 
have a why isn't that me fantasy and it may be disconnected and maybe I'm reading way too much into this but I think a lot of those sort of men and women in positions of power are so rare that this character is actually just desperate to write the things he writes right (laughs) it's a lot of right yeah 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 she uh it's I it just my heart breaks for her like it is hard it's a tough industry and it just shows like you're not alone it is just it's a tough one to crack and it's funny actually like the memoirs I've read of various journalists and I feel like they've all just gone through the exact same struggle what's a good example I don't read a lot of journalism memoirs so there's two in particular as uh it just it just happens that they are journalists and they wrote a memoir and obviously their background would feed into it so one is Text me when you get home. Oh, it's on my bed. And (laughs) she's off to her bed. Uh, By Kayleen Schaefer. And (laughs) she worked at a men's magazine. And it took, and this is actually a memoir about the evolution and triumph of modern female friendship. And she talks about how she, like, she's, it's quite pertinent to the story. She really wants to be in a men's magazine because. She was like, that is where the best writers go, a.k.a. the men, where the men write. They write all these amazing stories. And she talks about her incredibly toxic approach to women friendships. She just thought women were not worth her time. So when she was in the office, she would not give any other woman the time of day. She would just be like lapping up to the male editors and, you know, being one of the guys, being one of the bros. She spent so much time pretending to be this person that she fails to see these incredible women around her. Mm. And then the other book is um, The Rules Do Not Apply by Ariel Levy. So she is a writer at The New Yorker. So not specifically a men's magazine. However, a similar situation started out as an editorial assistant was not getting any very meaty assignments. Then, like, two years down the line, she pitches an article about... It was a night where, where apparently fat women would go and dance. And it was specifically for larger women to go dance. And oh, that's fun. Yeah. So she, but she, yeah, she pitched the idea about how it was like the space where women of a certain size could feel free, but how, why do we need a space in society for, like... Why do they need a night to do that? And so she mm. went off and she did um, a reported, big reported feature. And from then on, she got started getting more things. But it takes a, it took a while for both of these women to be recognized. And when they're sitting right beside, they're just a few desks away from certain writers, you know. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah, it is absolutely mad. And but what's great about um Archer and his um positioning in the story is that he what's the book he wrote? Oh, it was basically like fuck my wife. It was a, <laughs> it was a male's account of divorce and oh, we only ever hear the women's side. It is so perfectly placed in this book. Um, but yeah, he he ties a lot of things in for her ambition and her own views on marriage and divorce and all the rest of it. It's theme goals is what Archer Sylvan is. Mm, yeah, uh, he is the epitome of just like toxic male writer, you know, <laughs> going up to the top of the mountain to eat some, was it some boar's heart? <laughs> 
and to like get the secret of life. Poor Libby, that's all she wanted to do. She wants to be sent to the top of the mountain and eat. To eat the heart. Yeah, and get the yeah. secret of life. And she did not get that opportunity. Instead, she got to write about a middle-aged divorced man and make an incredibly successful novel. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Something a little closer to home. Archer's, <laughs> Archer's ending, though. Oh, my God. Uh, he. What was his ending? I can't remember. He, d- he died? Yeah, he died. Oh, yeah. And how he died was... Um, in Bangkok or somewhere in Thailand and with a lot of prostitutes and um, because of course yeah because of course and <laughs> I think just like some drug overdose and it was like yeah yeah, yeah. and you know it's it's really interesting his place in this story because obviously he's played by Christian Slater in the TV show and that is a man who just has boundless charisma right and I think part of the I don't know secret trick to being a great feature writer is your charisma and your personality and obviously Libby has that but she's so unsure of herself and so not given the opportunities he was given as a man that he is the sort of person who would fall into being that magazine's headline writer and being nominated for Nobel Prizes or whatever the fuck award his work was nominated for because he'll be connected enough as a rich white man with a big profile to afford those experiences. And there is a point probably in a Libby or someone like her's life that just goes my gender is always going to be in the way. And actually, is it worth still wanting what he's achieved if you know after a decade or however long she was at the magazine, I can't remember, it was 10 or 15 years, I think, um, that you just have to go, okay, this world is not for me. Like, it won't open its doors to me. And maybe that's part of her big issue with suburbia is that the something else was that, and that still ignored the things she was really passionate about. Mm. Almost like polar ends of a spectrum, right? Yeah. Wanting to travel the world and walk up mountains and eat hearts and learn the mini life, or be in the suburb with some kids and going to the pool. Yeah. The thing about journalism, it's because she just wants to be a journalism and writing it's so bound up in identity and who you are and how you present yourself to the world and if you're in a space and you're in an industry you're in a room where no one is giving you opportunities you just take it like you know day after day year after year it just wears you down when no one is there to validate you I just think like we're how can I put this? Work is a massive part of our lives. And so for some, work does not make up their identity. They literally just like do their nine to five. They check in, they check out. And it's just like, just they just, it pays the bills, right? Mm. Whereas for any creative, it is, they take things very personally. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a job where you put a lot of yourself into it. And if you see someone who's constantly getting the breaks, and you're not, you are ultimately gonna, you're, there's no way you can't not take it personally. And there's only so much 
self-approval you can do if you are putting yourself for 15 years in a space like that for five days a week and at some point you do need to make a decision about your level of self-love and compassion it's like do I actually want to be doing this to myself day in day out putting myself in a space where my best will be you know just filing the next article on time or when Libby is at her best in her career she is at those drinks and people are celebrating her for her part in some weird social media campaign that she had something to do with and then realizes one of her newest colleagues is basically jumping ahead of her on the ladder to the top. And it's obviously a man and he hasn't put the time in and he hasn't put the work in. And she goes, no, I need these opportunities. And they go, oh, well, maybe we'll give you something on the NFL cheerleading coaches because in a men's magazine, that is sort of the best a woman can hope for, right? She'll be the one who can get in with the cheerleaders. And that'll be interesting to watch or read too. And that that's probably the biggest break she's gotten that year, being given a big piece on something she doesn't want to write but feels feminine enough they can get away with giving it to her without question. Mm. A story that maybe no one else really wants after putting in a decade of hard work and pitching and the rest. And that is just reality. I think what's so (laughs) big and evil to us is being in so many situations like that in our own experiences as journalists. Again, there are a million talented and well-deserving men out there doing amazing work, but there's also a lot who don't put as much effort in don't put as much time in, don't pitch as much. And inevitably in any space in journalism, it is the sort of richer, well-connected men who who get the stuff done, uh, even if even if we came up with the idea. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a big one. You can see how that'd break a person down when that is, as she says, her only dream. That's the only thing she wanted to do. The person she was obsessed with and going to the talks of was the key writer at that publication. It's an obsession that she could not fulfill despite her efforts. It's like, you know, that man is her Hemingway. I feel like a lot of writers feel that way about Hemingway. They are just like, I want to be like it. That is Elizabeth Gilbert's uh like that was her true north for a while she just, oh, really yeah she just wanted to be Hemingway she wanted to do stories like him and that's why for a long while she wrote quite masculine style story you know gonzo journalism I think one of her first one of a novel she wrote or not a novel non piece of work of non-fiction she went to find like the last cowboy in America and she like you know stayed with him and like spent loads of time with him and ended up quite like um Tom Wolf and that sort of so Tom Wolf wrote about um he's really famous for writing about the first astronauts uh and just oh. yeah and what's it called oh I have it. the right stuff the right stuff is what it's called um it's a very good read actually <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so Archer is just another figurehead for these sorts of men who did gonzo journalism and 
it was very it's very it's very egotistical form of writing and yeah it is actually yeah it's, it's, <laughs> yeah it is um, appealing as it is i know because we all just want to go off and do some mad crazy shit and be like, oh, wait, there's a story in this. <laughs> and now I'm rich having these life experiences. Hooray. Can we discuss that the magazine paid for his funeral? In what world is <laughs> a publication today paying for a writer's funeral? I'm just like, sorry, did he get sponsorship from some whiskey? <laughs> like, I just knew he was doing that <laughs> That is mad. I yeah. I love how you've remembered so much about Archer's like storyline. He was really just like ugh, j- evil male journalist. Oh no, I just re I rewatched <laughs> the finale recently, and I was just like, I just made a big point of like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Why did they pay for that? No, yeah, I guess you'd have to, right? I'm sorry. Uh, I won't name names, but like, you know what I mean? Are like certain <laughs> publications gonna pay for certain columnist <laughs> funerals? In some ways, they already have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, that's such a good note. I know. God. Great detail. Great detail. Great, de- great. Taffy, as in the writer, the showrunner, the everything to do with this story and this TV show, is a genius for details. Mm. They are really what make all of these characters so specific and personable and sort of going back to what we were saying in the beginning so authentic in these portrayals because they do such specific weird very unlikable things a lot of the time that you just have to pay attention and assume that it's just based on people she knows in her life right all of these people definitely exist in Taffy's world I could not be convinced otherwise oh absolutely so the reason she even wrote the book was she well yeah she just entered her 40s and so Taffy is someone who lives in the suburbs and is she is married and she has kids and um, but suddenly she was just like everyone around her was getting a divorce and then she and you know people were joining dating apps and then she quickly realized that the men were the winners in terms of them on the dating app as opposed to the women she was she recounted a story of um she's over at her friend's place and the friend uh, who had just been divorced was about to go on a date oh and taffy was minding the kids for the evening so taffy asks can she see the man she's about to go on a date with and she shows the man she shows taffy the profile and the man on his profile says that you know, any psychos out there, please feel free to walk on. His ex-wife, you know, has... Oh, fuck off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, He's only looking for, like, kindness and compassion sort of thing. And then Taffy was like, so her friend, what about this is appealing? And, her, uh, and then her friend goes, no, Taffy, you don't understand. That was the best of the crop. Yeah. So Taffy could just see how uneven the playing field was when it comes to divorce in the camp of divorced men versus divorced women. And also the question of divorce, apart from a lot of people in her life getting divorced and always talking about it and just her fascination with just being on dating apps again post-divorce for people who grew up in a time where going on a date was, you know, you met someone in a bar and you got ready, like you took your time. Um, or you met uh, through friends. The thing about divorce is her parents got divorced when she was a kid. So 
you know, ultimately that is going to be a question that plays out in your mind of why they get divorced, what could have been done better, how could I have mitigated that? And, you know, because she's always asked, you're happily married or, you know, from all intents and purposes, why were you writing about divorce? And she gen- she was just like, you know, I would like to do some preventative work. I would like to see, you know, I, if I can, I would like to see it coming because there are so many factors to divorce. Obviously, which started with her parents and has now circled back to the people in her life. That's such a good origin story, man. I really enjoy that. You're welcome. <laughs> God, facts. I love facts. Mm. Um. <laughs> I know, it was great. I, yeah. <laughs> it's such a good, it's sort of way to encapsulate what so much of this show is about, right? It's the behaviors that people fall into. It's the lives people assume they're just supposed to have one way or another. I think Libby's a really good example of that. She was obsessed with a magazine and a man. So when that's the life I should have, she reached a certain age where things weren't really moving forward. And she went, oh, I think I'll go have a family. A lot of these sort of unconscious choices we all make. And in Toby and Rachel's case, I suppose it's the breakdown of communication and respect and all of the things that are so imperative to not just their marriage, but any marriage. And the slow burn we see throughout that series is devastating because it's so real. Mm. You see that those are both very, you know, faulted people, but who isn't? And watching them hurt each other is painful. Lizzie Kaplan said in an interview that we're all heroes and we're all anti-heroes. Ain't that the moral of the story? <laughs> exactly. No one is perfect. We're all humans. We're all flawed. Even the story is flawed in the sense that, you know, we're seeing an incredibly privileged class here. It is privileged angst mm. for sure. There are very, like, you know, Toby is working a job. He's getting $300,000 a year. Rachel is this like hot shit agent. And Libby was a magazine writer. And then she, she has the privilege of being able to just be a, to stay at home and be there for the kids while her husband goes off to work. And he, you know, he's the breadwinner. Yeah. And where am I going with this? The... <laughs> really privileged people <laughs> yeah uh, no, yeah. yeah but no you're you're very right and I, I can't even connect to whether that was what we were intending to discuss or not but it's so true and I think there's something that could be really unlikable about watching that sort of group of people struggle with their feelings and their relationships but it's handled with such care and complexity in the sense that these people don't have to worry about a lot of things realistically the person who has the most to worry about is rachel because she's having a massive mental health issue she's having a nervous breakdown and speaking of i think we've discussed this before but do you know that a nervous breakdown is not an actual real medical thing do expand (laughs) (laughs) so so 
sorry. I just triggered a memory in me. I don't remember why, but I think about six months ago. Yeah. Oh my God. I think it was when I was attacked in the foreign country. <laughs> Story for another time podcast. Um, but after that, I was like, oh my God, am I having a nervous breakdown? Because I felt so overwhelmed and so, I don't know. Like my body wasn't doing the things I needed it to do. My diabetes was awry. I was like, is my body breaking? Am I having a nervous breakdown? And it doesn't exist. Like there is no medical terminology that says it existed. And it's actually something I think, and again, this could be totally wrong because this is not something I've researched in at least six months, but it's something that was used to describe women having massive mental health issues as in there is so no such thing as a nervous breakdown but of course when you're stressed or overwhelmed or in a specific moment of you know intense change or threat or whatever it may be like sometimes your body does just not work quite the same and your brain won't do the things you need um but yeah nervous breakdowns don't exist that is wild <laughs> I've just Googled like, you know, nervous breakdown origin and like a variety of things are coming up. I'm looking at the connection between sex and nervous breakdowns appears in an 1889 short story by Anton Chekhov. And as in manic women. (laughs) There we go. So the term nervous breakdown first appeared in a 1901 medical treatise for physicians. It is a disease of the whole civilized world. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, huh. Right. Okay. This is a whole deep dive. I know. We can definitely we can definitely come back to. I'm sure we'll discuss another character that has an RVB. Nervy B. So what the kids are saying these days. I then think that's the only way to contextualize it, isn't it? But yes, yeah, so whatever is happening to Rachel, she is the one with the problems, right? She is having a genuine disconnect between brain and body and time. And she has something she needs to worry about in that sense. She may not have been a saint, but that is a real problem. Everyone else is feeling sorry for themselves. <laughs> and I just have the most sympathy for Libby out of them. Yeah, so she, I, I just think she vocalizes a lot of fears that we just don't articulate regularly, which is that mm. is all this really worth it? Am I spending these years, maybe the best years, focused on the right things? When does it get easier? Or, you know, how did I get here? And I think as well, the placing, the setting of it in New York is genius, but also it's what Taffy knows, right? The writer. Mm. Uh, she, well, she grew up in Brooklyn and then, and also Long Island. But also, I mean, like the majority of her career has been in New York. And these troubles are so, I mean, it's like in succession. They are so specific to a New York elite. And the idea, I think as well with Libby, right, is that you see it's the choices you, again, yeah, it comes back to choice. And the fact that she left New York, there's something about leaving. It's not any capital city. It is, no, sorry, Washington, D.C. is the capital of America. But you know what I mean? (laughs) Like New York is such a, it is a massive, it's a big city. It's a big apple. 
It is, it is. And, well, you know, so many people go and they try and take a little a little chunk. They try to take a big chunk and they end up being lucky if they get a fucking nibble, right? Ain't that <laughs> And so when you make the decision to leave, it is a whole identity crisis. It's an identity shift, right? It is like, oh my God, I am leaving the bestest city in the world and what does that say about me does it say mm. does it say i didn't make it i couldn't make it and like everyone people who leave they say all the empowered shit right it's like oh you know some green space for the kids or i just need air that's not polluted or i need um yeah, i need i've done everything i need in that city and you know maybe that is true i think it's really interesting because i've never actually spent any time thinking about you know city exodus as it is but everybody leaves there is so 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 few people the smallest minority of the minority that end up living in big cities for their entire lives so why is there so much attached to making it or whether or not it was part of it or having to have an excuse for leaving right if you want to live a more comfortable life, is there something wrong with that? Or is there only something wrong with that for people ambitious enough to move to a city in which they have to share rooms with 20 people and <laughs> you know, live on rice uh, for years and years to try and achieve that specific goal, whatever it may be. Um, but it's definitely true of New York and London and even LA. I think as well, like, I mean, obviously people leave New York and they are more than happy to leave the city because they are like, fuck this. Why do I want to be in a city where I need to work three jobs in order to keep things afloat? But when you're in the class that they're in, when you have made the decision to hunker down, what with this, I'm thinking of Toby and Rachel specifically, you need to keep up appearances. And that is ultimately exhausting because you are you are trapped like uh, to be honest, you're only trapped if you're like looking for other people's approval. Right. So you can obviously just go off and do your own thing. But if you want your kid, like the thing is, you want the kids to be doing what the other kids are doing. You just want the best for them. Mm. And so you find yourself like doing all sorts of things to make sure they get the best of everything and that they don't feel in any way put down or in any way othered or lesser or inferior. And God, you would just like run yourself into the ground. And that's the thing. Yeah. New York is not a city that attracts people who are looking for comfort. Yes, absolutely. It's it's an uncomfortable state of living, isn't it? I think to also even it sounds very sort of whimsical to say about rich people, but it's uncomfortable to be in rich circles. The expectations are always going to be higher of you. I think, you know, Toby being a bit of a dick who doesn't have a lot of interests flies in that triad he's in, but it won't fly around rich people who share a lot of rich interests and who want to challenge each other and get a kick out of it because <laughs> how else do they have fun? It's just, it's so not the space for someone who doesn't want it. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thing is, Rachel wanted it. He's not that fussed. He is so sick of their bullshit. And, but you're right. Which is understandable. Like, her friends, air quotes, are fucking 
awful. They're <laughs> awful. They are atrocious. I am like, why would you choose to spend your time around all that? You know, your self-esteem must be so low mm. to ch- want okay. to choose to do that social climb. It looks it's, exhausting. It looks horrendous. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting, too. And I think, like, watching characters like Rachel and Libby, not to compare women, um, but coexist in this show because they really are the two lead females, um, both also nominated for Emmys. Woo, go girls! Yeah, girl! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the difference in them is stark as people. They're driven by a lot of the same things. And I think that's really well portrayed through those performances and through the actions that those characters take. I think it could be a little gross to watch two rich women, you know, air quotes, struggle and both leave their husbands and both try to find something else for themselves. But they are on very different paths. And even the fact that sort of Libby ends up finding Rachel in that park and really wants to look after her, it's almost like she's looking after herself. By that point, she's gone through so much, you know, she's in that, and so much in her own head (laughs) as the narrator and as this person trying to figure out what the fuck her life is. I think she's in that park just to smoke a cigarette by herself, you know, not to have an affair, not to escape the family forever she just needs a little bit of time because she doesn't really know who she is and has all these big broad feelings about authenticity and who she was when she was younger so to meet Rachel in that moment after weeks and weeks if not months I'm not sure of the exact timeline by that time of that woman being missing and her caring about her feels really poetic and purposeful Mm. Ah, let's talk about the, their portrayal of motherhood. <laughs> I think it's 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 so it's brilliant in the sense of it subverts the male and female roles it, like with these two couples. You see, especially with um divorced the divorced couple, so Toby and Rachel. You see suddenly because normally, so the women will get the kids. They are forced with the five day week trudgery of getting the kids to school, taking them to the extracurriculars, like getting the lunches ready, all that shite, right? And then it's is the, the stereotype. It <laughs> is yeah. the stereotype, yes. <laughs> and whereas men typically will get the kids for the weekend, so it's free time. You're, you know, going to the cinema, and you are, um. I don't know, playing ball, you're going, (laughs) whatever people do with kids. You know, it's a real, uh, like he gets the good side, you know, he gets the fun time, whereas the mom has to deal with a lot of logistics and weight. And emotional um, baggage. The the emotions that go through, like, you know, kids as they grow up and all the stuff that go through schools. The burden, even though burden may not be the right word day to day, is always put on the mother in the societies that we live in. Mm. Yeah. And Rachel and Libby are not fulfilling that that role. (laughs) 
<laughs> They're sort of like, oh yeah, I had kids. Where are they? <laughs> but especially through Toby, when you see like you see Toby and Libby's husband, um, they're both suddenly having to take care of the kids, and it's so clever on t- Taffy's part to show that to sh- because suddenly you know she's let because you're getting a lot of male viewers through this who will connect with Toby's story. And for them to see the shit that what typically a woman in divorce would go through, it's rare we see that on screen. Very, very rare. Hard agree. 10 points to Taffy Brodesser Ackner for her wonderful work in taking 1% of the load off of women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because no. often, you know, we're, women are like, it's only the last 10, probably what, five? 10 years that we're seeing mother like you know motherhood is sold as this thing that we should want we women should be maternal we it's a rite of passage you know you go you get married you have kids and slowly more and more works are being produced where you're like shit is this actually what i wanted i've been sold this lie like it's actually painful and terrible and i don't want to be here there are some mothers who feel like that but do not feel safe to articulate these notions because it goes against the societal role of mother as uh, sorry woman as nurturing mother yeah yeah i could not agree more i think shows like this for you know that reason and (laughs) all the other reasons that thematically this show i feel covers a lot but i think it's really essential we see more stories like this with these kinds of women because these are the women we know right i i don't know a single woman our age who is bees knees about having kids and want to give up their careers to have them and all the rest and i think the majority of women we still see on tv are falling into the i don't want to say trap (laughs) um (laughs) falling into the frame of Ah, of course I had kids. It was the best thing I ever did, even if it's part of a story in which, I don't know, they died or Mm. (laughs) they're in a plane crash or whatever the story is. There's always this sort of rhetoric of the mother and their child being of the utmost importance um, without necessarily acknowledging who those women are. And that is what Libby slash Taffy is really exercising throughout this narration is did we have the chance to decide who we were? Is that why they now feel the way that they do? Mm. <laughs> big question. Big question. Big question. Because the um, thing is, oh, when you sorry. get married, and you have kids. It does limit choice. You are, you are very, you are at the, the framework has gotten much tighter to work in within and you know it's it's suddenly it's just not it's not about just you and the husband anymore or you and the partner anymore it's about everyone else you've got to factor in everyone else's needs there are far more compromises to be made you have to there's a lot of sacrifice that goes on having kids and it's almost like a chokehold i just feel like it is such a claustrophobic show in that sense not just the the fact that it's in New York, but also the fact that they're running against time and they feel like they can't, that they can't do anymore. They can't reach anymore. It's like they've really just kind of gone to the top of the mountain and it's just like, shit, well, I'm here now. And 
<laughs> they didn't get to eat that heart and now they don't know the meaning of life. <laughs> no. No, because yeah. there are no there are no happy answers because no one's happy with the answer. It's just like this is it. This is literally it. <laughs> That's it. And I think there's something weirdly optimistic about it in a level because this is a show and a novel that doesn't really decide whether any of these characters are doing things right or wrong. But what we do know is they're all now very aware of the time they do or don't have. And one of my favorite lines, let me find it, is you are right now as young as you will ever be and now and now, which feels so tingly good, tingly important. all the tingles Mm, yeah it's it's a it's a neutral space to look at all of these themes and lives that women and men our age are facing day to day right i mean i'm not in my 40s but speak for yourself (laughs) (laughs) i'm not in my 40s (laughs) no it's people of our generation shall we say Mm. Uh, we are a generation that is is in the in-between for the ambition and the parenthood and the big cities versus small towns and the mental health versus keep it all in and carry on. Uh, Yeah, it's a lot of these themes feel so universal, but they're told in the most personal way. Um, Okay, so I have to bring up, you wrote down in one of your notes, finding out your friend is a dick. I mean, great point. Talk me through that. It's a it's a tough situation to find oneself. Right? I just, I think because sort of as we mentioned with their sort of early interactions with Toby, it's extremely clear that she does not care if she is just being used by him as an emotional crutch or a, almost like a, a drop-in replacement woman for the one that no longer is living with him or is around his children, right? She is just (laughs) plopped into the spot that Rachel once was, even though it's not romantic or sexual. And I I can't remember exactly when it happens, but it's around the time she finds Rachel. When she tells Toby, I've found Rachel, she is a mess. He says something to the effect of, what do you want me to do, cook her a lasagna? He is so disconnected to anyone else around him, or maybe his children, but that's, you know, it's <laughs> a whole other story. He's incredibly selfish. He is a real dick, and she has to face that, and that takes her some time too. And I think what sort of better way to fuck you, a dickhead friend, than write a book about them, <laughs> being a dickhead. <laughs> Oh, I have to say it was really gas. It's so ironic when they are, it was a Seth, he's hosting his engagement party. And then yes. they're like in the middle of the room having a full on DMC breaking down as she tells him her, like basically his own life story and what she's going to write and like what the ending is. And um, the irony of like, you know, their friend finally embarking on the marriage path and then <laughs> two people, their marriages are like slowly crumbling away, slowly eroding. Well, you know, it's actually some hope for Libby's um, marriage. And obviously Toby has just vacated his. Um, <laughs> but vacated. it was just like, you know, 
it was it was it was a very uh, something quite sweet about that scene you know just kind of mm. there was a, just a real acknowledgement of these are the cards that life dealt them and they're making peace with it and they're just gonna move on because you can't rewrite history yeah, unless you write a book about it. Unless you write a book. I love that he... <laughs> also, he wasn't at all like, you can't write about me. He was very... He just accepted it. Yeah. Because, you know, deep down inside, he's like, oh, yeah, there's going to be a book about me. Now people will notice. You are so <laughs> right. He is that self-involved. He is just like, yep, yeah, I want to... Yeah. Of course I'm the subject of that book. Um, oh, okay, right. So on his dating profile, he put down, <laughs> I was just like, okay, I have to get your thoughts on this. <laughs> if you came across a man or a woman and they said that their favorite meal, right? Caesar salad with shrimp. Favorite meal. Thoughts. Dude, I really like it. <laughs> what? Their favorite <laughs> meal. Can I explain why? Okay. Hey. I mean, obviously I need an explanation. <laughs> That's the saddest thing. If I saw that on a dating profile, I'm like, you know? anyway, go on. I love the character. I hate the man uh, of Toby. But Caesar salad with shrimp is fucking delicious. Like it's a light meal. You can have just about any season and feel like you've treated yourself. Because a good homemade Caesar dressing is the fucking one. That's a man who knows people would judge that and he's comfortable with it obviously because he's a self-involved narcissist and wants to lay it all out there he's actually maybe probably a little bland but it's 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 a good meal i'd ask why i'd ask why definitely (laughs) what's funny is you're spot on because his actual favorite meal is like steamed chicken with steamed vegetables that was his narrative. He was like, he's writing down like Caesar salad with shrimp. And he's like, it's actually steamed chicken with vegetables. But, you know, that's not going to get many likes. And I'm just like, I'm not even going to like someone who's put down Caesar salad with shrimp. That says, <laughs> I don't know. But I'm also not going to like swipe on someone who's saying steak. You know, I think that's a very specific person. So, um, yeah, you know- I think there's also something non-sexy about someone being like my favorite food. It's sort of the question you'd ask like your friend in kindergarten like what food do you like these are salad me too and then <laughs> you know? Cause if I'm a little kindergartner I love Caesar salad it's my favorite thing ever I just love how crispy the croutons get <laughs> I love I love sourdough croutons <laughs> you know I'm just one of those New York private school playgrounds my mum buys her sourdough from Zabar's <laughs> it's so true Oh, uh, but no, yeah. I, I mean, the longer I think about it, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't touch a person that talked about their favorite food in a dating profile. But well, you're a food writer. I know, but it's such a turn off. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think if we got into a conversation and somebody was like, oh yeah, like oh, I just went to this great restaurant, and then they tell you their favorite dish there, and it happened to be something that sounds bland and then they were passionate about it that's attractive but if someone's just like plopping their favorite food on their profile because they have nothing interesting to say about themselves it's not like a character trait is it liking food like we all pretty much eat and like food that's why 
the, it is like the death of apps right now, Bumble and Hinge in particular, <laughs> and Tinder, because it's like there's only so many pizzas of pineapples that you can like, <laughs> like who is what? Are you telling me you're fruity? Like what is going on there? It's like ooh, I like a bit of pineapple on my pizza. It's like mate, I like that is not an interesting fact. It's really not, is it? I renege my original comment. I do not endorse this. Caesar salad shrimp man why not I'm, I'm fucking over it <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm angry about it now I'm like of course because he has genuinely no personality mm-hmm. he really doesn't no he's just Libby should have found better friends I feel like there would have been some like cool guys at that magazine that she just didn't hold on to you know people who had similar interests but maybe she was just so obsessed with Archer, she didn't spend the time to get to know. Oh yeah, I I, I absolutely agree. She just like hero worshipped that man and just followed him his coattails and just ignored everyone else, pushed them to the sidelines. Yeah, you're right. She could have found better friends. Who was she hanging out with before the boys came back into her life? It seemed like the mom. Yeah, I think it was her husband and the and the local moms, wouldn't it? I think that that is sadly I think <laughs> there is I do understand and I know that a lot of mothers have this issue where unless you're making friends with other mothers once you've had a child it's quite hard to meet new people mm. and make acquaintances and then your friendship largely does become about your children and setting them up as friends and being in the same rooms as them while they enjoy their time or whatever else it may be. You just don't have the time and resources to go, I don't know, meet people at a cool new hobby or whatever it may be, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts on Miss Libby Epstein? No, honestly, I just think we like really we covered this character. We we really dug in there. Um... <laughs> what would you hope for Libby Epstein's future that we probably will never see? Oh, I hope she just writes this book and like you know goes on a book tour and it's suddenly just writing again. You know, I just think <gasps> that's what is lacking in her life. There's a very meta version of this show where that book she writes gets turned into a tv series <laughs> oh a hundred percent look it is just that is the trajectory of her life yeah yeah absolutely well done taffy for being libby and lizzie for being libby and everybody for being each other you did it really well on that note thank you again for coming and listening to us chat shit for an hour uh, if you want to continue listening, do hit that subscribe button on whatever app you are listening to this on. And we'd love a review because it helps get the word out about the, all this shit chat. Yeah. Uh, speak for yourself. I thought we sounded excellent. And for all <laughs> you out there, you may email us your love and devotion to hello at she's having an episode dot com uh but also just any general feedback you I mean gen- you, you know what you might have hated it and that's okay we might might not want to hear that though so just leave that to, <laughs> keep that to yourself if we ever get to a point where we're receiving well-articulated hate mail like we'll really have made it you know mm, mm. haikus they're also good yeah <laughs> anyway here we yeah. are encouraging hate mail <laughs> sorry no only love send us hearts only love okay no um, so we'll, we really will leave you here now okay. and do subscribe Ta-ta. to our podcast 
Yeah. See you next week, baby. Ciao. Bye.